What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. It's our show that's geared primarily towards our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, and we ask that question every day. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? If you would like to give us your answer to that question, we would love to hear it. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-288. 3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1 205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams coming to you live from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our longtime partners in this Catholic radio venture and our thanks to Al Cresta, Mike Jones, and Steve Clark and their whole team here at Ave Maria for being such gracious hosts for us. Charles Beery is producing the program. Um, I will find out who is call screening because, quite frankly, I'm not there and I don't know. So uh, our... Our Rich is call screening. Rich Jesse is our celebrity call screener today. And Jeff Burson, magnificent person, is handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every day back there in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. David Andrews, how are you? Jack, I'm fine. How about you? I'm doing fantastic, thank you. KD is watching us on YouTube. And she says, last week's show has made me feel mixed up. You discussed devotion, prayers, saints, and Mother Mary. Prayer is tough, and I just feel the quote-unquote debate was a bit overwhelming. Any suggestions on how I should look at prayer and devotion to Mary? Um, yeah, thank you. Favorably, uh, in the short answer, <laughs> right? Obviously, we want you to pray. We want you to be devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, so I recall the conversation for last week. So for the sake of the listeners who weren't here, I'll, I'll kind of recap it. The, the question was raised basically about, um, you know, the, sort of the right order of priorities in our prayer life and, and whether we should, uh, well, basically, what's the role for, for charity and contemplation and what's the role for, uh, you know, the, the vocal repetition of the prayer and the kind of uh, 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 affection that we show to uh, our, our favorite devotions and to the Blessed Virgin. And the teaching of the Catholic faith is really clear on whatever kind of prayer you go in for, whether it's a particular devotion or your prayer of the liturgy or the liturgy of the hours or or however you pray. The ultimate goal of prayer is to be conformed to the mind of Christ, to be changed in his likeness and image. And and when I read the mystics of the Church, like Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, that that whole dimension of Christian prayer, that contemplative prayer, is entirely oriented to how is prayer going to change me? 
How, how am I going to become more like Christ? Paul talks about having the mind of Christ. He says to the Galatians, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, St. Paul, am in labor pains until Christ is formed within you, this idea that it is the birthright of every baptized person to grow up into fullness into Jesus. And that ultimately is the, the, the aim and goal of all prayer. Now, prayer can also be petitionary prayer for specific prayer intentions. You know, please heal Aunt Susie of her ailment. Please help me do well on my test or whatever it might be. And that's perfectly legitimate. Uh, but it's always qualified by the, you know, not my will but thine be done, which is what Christ himself exemplified. And so I made some comments last week that may have distressed people, didn't intend to, that essentially once you get away from the pursuit of holiness, once you neglect that desire to be united to God in your will, in charity, then prayer itself ceases to really be of any value as Christians have always understood it, right? Prayer is not a magical formula to twist the arm of God or to compel him to give us what we want. I mean, the Lord's Prayer doesn't say, Lord, you know, grant me uh, my will on earth, you know, make it in heaven as it is on my will on earth. We, we, we turn that around. We want God's will done on earth, not our will done in heaven. And, uh, and so the, the minute we get away from that, that conformity to the mind of Christ, conformity to the will of God, conformity to the life of charity, and begin to treat prayer as simply a kind of um, a mechanical formula for getting what we want, uh, then, then it becomes superstitious. And that's the language that the Catechism of the Catholic Church uses. It says even of the sacraments themselves that we can approach them with the right disposition to be conformed to Christ, or we can approach them superstitiously, treating them, you know, as if we can somehow manipulate the mind of God to do our will without, without changing our interior life accordingly. Uh, it was a great Catholic doctor of the Church, St. Francis de Sales, wrote a magnificent book called Introduction to the Devout Life. And uh, I highly recommend that people look at it, especially chapter 1, because St. Francis, who is, to be a doctor of the Church, means that the Church has recognized that this, this person is an authentic, authoritative interpreter of the Catholic tradition. And so he looks specifically at the Church's devotional life, the life of private and personal prayer, and says, what is the utility of this thing? And what is the true devotion that we're aiming at? And what he says is, whether it's the rosary, whether it's uh, the Stations of the Cross, whatever your favorite devotion is, if it's not oriented to the love of God and neighbor, then it's misguided. And so that was basically my point. Now go ahead, and you, you ask for the A on the test. You ask for the healing from sickness. You, you do all those things, but you qualify them with the words of Christ, not my will, but thine be done. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. Just pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. If you're outside of the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-271. 2985, and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address again is ctc at ewtn.com. That's ctc at ewtn.com. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Tony in Los Angeles, Nancy in Wichita, Kansas, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. 833-288-EWTN is our number, 833-288-3986. It's called to communion with Dr. David Anders.
It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders, a Tuesday edition. I'm coming to you live from beautiful Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan uh, today. And want to tell you about a book that's hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing, Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story by Kate Sidner, illustrated by Anna Morelli. This delightful book helps children reflect on God's blessings in their lives. The captivating images convey the importance of faith and family, friends and fun, and a personal relationship with Jesus. Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story, a new book from EWTN Publishing, available at EWTNRC.com, by Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. couple of open lines for you right now. First up today is Troy. He is in Los Angeles, California, watching us on YouTube. First of all, Troy, are you dry? Uh, I think, I don't know if you meant Tony, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Tony. Dry. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you escaped uh, the wrath of all of the rain? Yeah, there was, it, was, it was much easier than, uh, than the winter, to be honest with you. Oh, well, very good. What's, uh, what's your question today? Um, so I, I, I mean, I listen to the show almost daily, and um, and I've heard um, on a few occasions people call in and ask about the crusade. And um, um, I guess my question is, if today, let's say Turkey decided to um, commit another genocide against against the Armenians, and let's say they decided to invade invade Greece, and then they went all the way to Italy, what would our response be? And if we do respond. Um, instead of being indifferent, then how is this any different from the crusade? Because, um, I mean, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about the crusades, and, um, you know, the first crusade was vastly different from the fifth, so on and so forth. The elements within the crusades, they were, um, you know, they had different defining features, and I highly suggest that, uh, you know, people read uh, Thomas Madden, in his book, The Crusade Controversy. Yep. But anyway. Yep. 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 I, I, before you said Madden, I was going to recommend the works of uh, Dr. Madden. He is the go to man to understand the real history of the Crusades. Uh, and so when you say, what would our response be? I take it you mean the response of the Catholic Church. Uh, I feel. Look, I mean, I, I can't predict what any particular pope is going to do under any particular historical circumstance, but I, I'd be willing to wager an awful lot that whoever the pope is at the time of such a tragedy, we're not going to hear a call for another crusade. That, I think that's fairly obvious to anybody who, who knows the, the lay of the land in the church today. That's not going to be the way the church responds. The Church typically responds to international conflict uh, through the attempt at diplomacy, through international diplomacy using all the regular diplomatic channels, uh, you know, to greater or lesser effect, obviously, um, but is not going to ally um, the Church and and sort of the military force of majority Christian nations, if there is any left in the world, uh, to the military defense of some uh, of some other Christian nation against a perceived, you know, Muslim invasion or something of that sort. That that's not going to be the way that the Church responds. Uh, now, you know, in, we have pretty articulate teaching about what constitutes a just war and 
when intervention, military intervention, is justifiable morally to protect, uh, you know, an aggrieved party from an aggressor and the possibility of, you know, grave human harm, that we have that kind of just war theology. But it's not going to be framed in terms of a crusade against Islam or anything of the sort. Is that helpful for you, Tony? I, I mean, it is. Um, but I mean, the, the I mean, um, I mean, yes, it is from the from the Catholic position. But what about I mean, us as as Catholics? Because I mean, uh, I'm a Christian from the Middle East, and I can tell you that indifference is just uh, uh, it, it's just it, it's killing. Us. Oh, oh, to be sure, absolutely, hundred percent. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the plight of a minority Christian communities in the Middle East and other places in the world. Uh, is is I think almost totally ignored by the Western media and Western politicians, and there are tremendous injustices that are perpetrated against Christian and uh, and other groups. I might add, in that part of the world and others that uh, that for whatever reason you know they don't they don't check the right uh, politically correct box on the part of uh, Western media, and so it gets absolutely no coverage at all, and uh, and is uh, is terribly neglected. I mean, I I uh, yeah, I, that, you're absolutely right. So. Uh, as far as what an individual Catholic can do, I mean, activism is a thing. I mean, you can go out there and try and spread the word and raise awareness. I mean, I have Catholic friends that work in federal agencies that, in their little tiny way, have tried to raise the status of uh, these kinds of conflicts in the mind of policymakers uh, in their respective agencies in the hope of trying to alleviate human suffering. But so far, those kinds of efforts certainly haven't risen to uh, you know, the level of the national consciousness. God bless you, Tony. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Miriam is watching on Facebook Live, Dr. Andrews, and she says, Where do Catholics get this idea about the three days of darkness? Where did it come from? Is it credible? Should we be concerned about it? She just doesn't understand it. Okay, great. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, this is the idea that some Catholics have that we're facing uh, an imminent apocalyptic doom in which God or Mary will blot out the light of the sun and uh, will be consigned to three days of darkness and the secrets of all hearts will be laid bare and things like only blessed candles will be able to provide light. There's a, a whole sort of elaborate um, description of this of this uh, supposed imminent apocalypse. Uh, Where did the idea come from? Uh, the best of my awareness, there are some individual Catholic visionaries that claim to have seen such things in their mystical trances and have written about them, and they've been circulated and gained popularity. Um, should we be concerned about it? Well, I will tell you, I, for one, do not have any blessed candles in my house against this possibility, and I'm not afraid of it, I'm not worried about it, and I put absolutely no credence in it whatsoever at all, neither, as far as I can tell, do the Holy See or the bishops. So this is not a part of Catholic teaching, certainly not a part of the revelation that Christ gave to the apostles. Um, I, I personally think it is the product of fevered imagination that has caught on with the sorts of people that are always given to apocalyptic uh, fantasies. And my, as a student of religious history, not just Catholic history, just looking over 2,000 years of Western society, I've seen this kind of thing emerge all the time. It, it emerges almost every generation. Uh, and it, it typically, it's very popular with people that feel put out or disaffected by the wider culture, uh, including the culture of the church. And uh, I, I, a lot of times I think it could be motivated by 
maybe an even kind of implicit desire for vengeance. If somebody feels like they've suffered injustice uh, or exclusion, they, they almost long for an apocalyptic end to history when the people that they dislike will get theirs. And, uh, and those that consider themselves to be the elect few and the minority uh, will be vindicated, you know, marching around with their blessed candles. That, that, that's, that's my sense of the thing. Sometimes not everybody has that disposition, of course. Some, I think, are just deceived by a narrative that is shared by a lot of people around them. But I do think there can be that kind of uh, psychological motive for why people would become so fascinated and, and invested in an idea uh, that the world's going to come to an imminent apocalyptic end and that they alone have the key to getting out of that scenario. Uh, but yeah, I, the church doesn't take it seriously. The pope and the bishops don't take it seriously. I don't take it seriously. I lose absolutely no sleep about it, except to the extent that I think it, uh, it breeds paranoia and confusion on the part of the Catholic laity. Next stop for us is Sarasota, Florida. Elizabeth is in Florida, streaming St. Gabriel Radio today. Elizabeth, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. David Anders. Hi. First of all, super grateful to you. I'm a convert of some years, in no small part, thanks to your show. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, um, in, uh, long story short, um, I was as I was explaining my my sort of my sharing my witness testimony recently on my conversion. I made this statement about how, you know, in my journey, I kind of had the, the impression after some years that the faith tradition I was raised in, which was Stone Campbell, Church of Christ, um, you know, was a pretty small boat. And I didn't mean it as a criticism, I'm sure it sounded like. Um, one of the things that did draw me to the Church many years later um, was the universality of it. And then, of course, the 2,000 years history and... So on, but um, if you're discussing that matter with somebody from my um, from the Church of Christ, they're not going to be bothered by that because they say, you know, well, the it's scriptural that it's a very narrow path. Um, there, there are a few that are saved, and that we as Catholics talk about the universality of, you know, God intended us all to be with Him. He intended us all to be saved. How do we? Oh, I think we may have lost. Oh, there you go, Elizabeth. We lost you for just a minute there. Uh, but how do we as Catholics reconcile that contradiction? Sure, sure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. So, you know, in contrast to the Church of Christ tradition, uh, it, it, when we look at the criteria that Christ gives for determining who is saved, they are exclusively ethical. Jesus on the last day, Matthew 25 uh, it says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, away from me, I never knew you, because you didn't feed the hungry or give drink to the thirsty or clothe the naked or visit the sick or the imprisoned. And every passage of Scripture that describes the future judgment describes it exclusively in ethical terms. There's no biblical evidence for the idea that Christ will evaluate us on the last day based on our doctrinal statements. Uh, or our ecclesiastical affiliation. And so you might add, well, then what then is the point of the Catholic faith? Why, why specify ecclesiastical doctrine? Why specify ecclesial affiliation if, if that's not ultimately what we're judged by? And the Catholic answer to that question is that Christ has given us the Catholic faith, the Catholic Church, as a means, as an instrument 
to conform us to his likeness and image. The, the goal of the Christian faith is to become more like Christ, to, to have the mind of Christ, for Christ to be fully formed within us. And the sacraments of the Catholic Church, the dogmas of the Catholic faith, the teaching of the Church, the, the, the moral catechesis is all there to form us into that likeness and image of Jesus. But it's the, it's the formation, it's that transformation of our personality, our consciousness, our affectivity, our will, our behavior. It's the final product on the basis of which we will be judged. Now, what the Church says is the Catholic faith is the objective means. That, that Christ put in the world for this transformation of persons. And it's through the church the world will be saved. Um, and so we want to invite people to that full participation in the Catholic faith, since this is the provision that Christ made to save us. However, we recognize that outside the formal boundaries of the Catholic faith, there are, there are um, elements of truth and sanctification that properly belong to the church, but have been separated for some reason from full Catholic unity. So take, for example, your, your Church of Christ friends have got a, a, a good chunk of the Catholic Bible, maybe 66 out of 73 books. They don't have the whole thing, and they certainly don't have all of Catholic tradition, but, but they've got 66 books. Well, that's a good start, right? I mean, you've got something with 66 books. Um, they, your Protestant friends typically have valid baptism, potentially, and valid marriages, potentially. So they got two out of seven sacraments. Well, you'd rather they have seven, but hey, two's a lot to work with. And I often say my Baptist granddaddy, he got more grace out of his two sacraments than, than I get out of my seven, because he was just such a good man. He was such a, a man of such high integrity. And the Church always has said that laying hold of whatever element of truth or sanctification that God has placed in your path, that salvation is open to all. And in fact, it's a dogma of the faith that God offers grace sufficient to save to every man, woman, and child, regardless of their condition, regardless of their culture, regardless of the religion of their avowed profession, grace is on offer, as well as those elements in tru of truth and sanctification that, though they properly belong to the Catholic faith, can be found in this kind of uh, um, deracinated form in other traditions. And so by laying hold of those, a person can be saved. Now, so when, when I look at the teaching of Jesus about the way being narrow that leads to salvation and few finding it, I don't think that the narrowness is construed along denominational lines. I think the narrowness is construed around ethical lines because it is difficult to live the ethical life that, that Christ demanded. It, it's hard to love our neighbor as ourself and, and God above all things and to die to ourselves and to our concupiscence and pride. And so that's where the narrowness comes in. You know, can I, can I in fact live that ethical life? Can I undergo that ethical transformation? And fortunately, it is not my job to judge that. You know, when, when I grew up in a non-Catholic tradition, grew up Presbyterian, it was really easy to delineate the elect and the damned, or at least the saved and the not yet saved. It was very clear, right? You know, if you, if you, if you practiced our faith and, and affirmed our confession— then you were clearly on the inside. And if you didn't, then it was highly, highly doubtful. And that's not the way the Catholic Church conceives of it. The Catholic Church recognized that there is a distinction between the saved and the lost, but that the discrimination of those categories is not available to us, that that lies with the mind of God, that is his judgment, uh, not for us to parse. And so, you know, as a Presbyterian, I couldn't even say to someone, Christ died for your sins. 
because as a Presbyterian, I believed in the doctrine of the limited atonement, that Christ didn't die for everyone. Couldn't even say that. Um, and, uh, but as a Catholic, I can look with hope on any man, woman, or child, not with certainty, but with hope for the salvation of any specific individual. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Couple of open phone lines for you, and plenty of time for your calls. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Next up is Dean in Boston, Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Dean, you're on with Doctor David Anders. Uh, hey, fellas, thank you for taking my call again. Just want to. Uh... I wanted to talk, if I could, about um, the, uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, but the, the Jewish Shema, or the Declaration of Hero Israel, the God is One God. Yes. And um, I think I heard you talk about it yesterday, Doc, and you were, um, you know, I mean, I've heard you talk about it before and explained, um, but something that uh, I haven't heard you mention, which to me seemed like it was huge, and I may or may not have this wrong, but... Uh, I believe that in Hebrew, there are two words for one. There is the one that is singular, um, and there is the one that is a plural. And what I mean by a plural is you could maybe say you have, um, you know, one congregant, or you could say you have one congregation, and the congregation would be a plural one, and the congregant would be a singular one, if you will. So um, it's my understanding that in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, every time um, that it speaks of God as being one, it is in the plural. And the two words are, um, are uh, and I'm, I, again, I'm not, I don't pronounce Hebrew, so I butcher them, I'm sure, but uh, the English translation looks like Echad, E-C-H-A-D, or Yachid. Y-A-C-H-I-D. And, again, one means singular and one means plural. And I just, uh, I thought, for me, it was huge in squaring up Christianity with the Hebrew God. Just wondering what your thoughts were on, on that type of thing, or if, if, um, yeah, if I got it all wrong. thanks, maybe. thanks. Okay, so I, I confess off the bat that I am not a Hebraist, nor the son of one, and I, I never took one course in Biblical Hebrew. I did take Biblical Greek, but in seminary I... I was heading in another direction, so I didn't. I didn't do biblical Hebrew. So, Father Mitch Pacwa is the is the resident Hebraist here at EWTN. Could speak to the grammar uh, much more precisely. However, I have some a general sense about the kind of question you're asking, uh, based on on two different lines of thinking. One is something that I know about grammars in general, in, in general, and uh, whether Hebrew, Greek, Latin, English, French, you name it. And that is that it's, it's really hard to make the kind of judgments that you're making, to, to take presumptions about the way my knowledge of English grammar works and apply them to, you know, to, like, without qualification to very specific exegetical conclusions about a text in a foreign language. 
um, uh, you know, I've, I've seen errors of that kind applied to Greek because, say, you know, Greek has rules of predication and, and, and syntax uh, that are inconsistent and complex, and you can get yourself in trouble really fast generalizing, you know, uh, uh, from a specific instance when, in fact, there is an exception to a rule that you're not aware of, and so that, that can really throw you off. So I, I'm real hesitant um, without without sort of a, a, a deep contextual knowledge of of uh, not just a word but of the whole grammatical system and the way it's applied you know across a, a variety of instances it's hard to make those kind of judgments and I'm not qualified to do it but I'm but I'm skeptical of uh, of those kind of things unless I hear it from someone who's really genuinely immersed in the in the critical study of the language um, now when it comes uh, specifically to the doctrine of the Trinity uh, you know, the best of my knowledge, most of the church fathers were not uh, real adept at Hebrew. I mean, there were some. Jerome, of course, was good in Hebrew, and, and Origen was a Hebraist, and they both translated the text from Hebrew into Latin and Greek, respectively. Um, I, but I don't remember this kind of commentary. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, uh, but I don't, it, it certainly doesn't play a large role in, in uh, Trinitarian speculation in the history of dogmatic theology, so I wouldn't make too much of it. And, uh, and, you know, on the surface, uh, there's clearly no explicit mention of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And uh, the, that shouldn't bother us, right? Because the revelation of Christ in the New Testament is understood by the New Testament authors themselves to be a new thing. That Christ brought knowledge of God that was, that was beforehand hidden. I mean, and they use they specifically use that language that the, the mystery of Christ revealed things that the the prophets and the uh, and the angels even of the old covenant uh, didn't know and couldn't have anticipated, and so the revelation that God is a Trinity re- really is part of Christian revelation, and while it might be possible to look back at instances of the Hebrew text and and to look for typologies, and clearly that is done, Christian theologians do look for Trinitarian typology in the Old Testament. But, you know, you, you can't really see typology w- without the benefit of the antitype. You've got to have the type and the antitype to see them both. You have to have the New Testament fulfillment in order to find the Old Testament analog. God bless you, Dean. We appreciate the question today. And also, if you have the opportunity, uh, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern time, Father Mitch Packwell will be hosting Open Line. If you could call this same number at that time, he could probably give you a little bit more detailed discussion. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We've got some open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. Paul's watching us on Facebook Live and wants to know, how was it that Jesus was the quote-unquote son of David? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, so uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke give us genealogies of Jesus that trace him to David, right? And so there's a, an explicit claim being made that he is of, of Davidic lineage, Davidic stock. And, of course, Son of David is a messianic title. It's not just a, a reference to his ancestry, but it's a royal claim about who he is in Judea, that he has a right to rule uh, over the nation of Israel. But, of course, Christ transforms that. He elevates that to a cosmic dimension uh, never anticipated uh, by David himself, to be sure. And we have a gentleman who's listening who called in and said he's a Catholic and has been been attending a Baptist church uh, since his marriage 35 years ago and notices Protestants seem unprepared for death. It's worrisome. Can you talk about the Catholic versus the Protestant approach 
to preparing for death. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So in in my Protestant life, before I was a Catholic, um, the the preparation that was typically made for death happened coincident with conversion. So the idea was if you committed your life to Christ, if you invited Jesus into your heart, or whatever your that particular Protestant church's understanding of Christian initiation was, whether it was baptism or faith or conversion, however they conceptualize it, once you're in the door of the Christian project, for most Protestants, that is the preparation for death. That is the guarantor of salvation. And uh, not all. I mean, there are exceptions, but but the majority of Protestants would take the position that once you're in the door, once you're in Christ, however they conceive of that, then your ticket to heaven is assured. Exceptions to the rule would be uh, people from the Arminian uh, theological tradition, not Arminian, but Arminian, um, Wesleyans in particular, the Methodist tradition, for example, they, they have a, a different understanding of the way salvation works. But your Calvinists and your Lutherans and most of your Baptists, uh, many Episcopalians, would pretty much sort of presume that heaven is the immediate birthright of any practicing Christian. And therefore, you don't have to do a whole heck beyond that other than get in the door. Uh, Catholics, of course, have a very different conception, which is that we achieve salvation by persevering to the end— and so we put a great stock in the ceremony around the end, right, to ensure that people, in fact, persevere, that they, that they go to their maker, uh, confessed of their sins, absolved of their sins, um, and, uh, and properly prayed for and, 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 and solidified, firmed up in their faith with fortitude so that they can undergo the, the, the trial and the trauma of death with constancy and die in the faith and in charity. And so the last rites of the Catholic Church... Um, arguably the most important of which historically has been viaticum. Uh, you know, communion is the ultimate sign of our being in Christ, uh, be delivered uh, to the dying. And in fact, in the ancient church, it was not uncommon to uh, uh, withhold communion from people as a penance. If they had done an egregious sin, they might be um, excluded from communion for a matter of years. But the early canons of the church made clear that whatever the ecclesiastical discipline is, when there's a question of danger of death, everything goes out the window, and you all hands on deck, and you provide every kind of pastoral accompaniment possible, including viaticum, uh, to a soul that's in danger of death because of the, the, that crucial importance of that final moment. Um, but, uh, of course, that flows from the Catholic conviction that our salvation is not assured unless we persevere to the end. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Mike is in Everett, Washington, and he sends an email saying, I recently had a conversation with a Protestant relative who claimed that, based on John 3.16, nobody is in hell. His logic was that if you do not believe, then you perish as in your soul is extinguished or disintegrated by God. He cannot conceive of a loving God allowing people to suffer in hell for all of eternity. Therefore, in his love, God by necessity would destroy the hell-bound soul. He also stated that if someone chooses to not be connected with God, God, as a loving creator, would not create a place of continued suffering for that soul. I gave him the standard Catholic argument that God gave us free will to cooperate with him in our salvation and that we are the ones that ultimately decide to be forever separated from God's love. But he argued that the Bible doesn't say so and only human authority. Please help. Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. 
So hell is a dogma of the Catholic faith. Um, it is derived from, but not dependent upon, the witness of Scripture. Christ, of course, talks about uh, punishment and exclusion from the face of God numerous places in the Gospels. Um, the, the clearest statement, of course, of the doctrine of hell comes in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Um, and the interpretation of those texts has a fairly consistent history in Catholic tradition, and it is a, a, an, an everlasting condition of exclusion from God. As far as the uh, the moral and logical challenges that your friend has posed to the doctrine of hell, I will confess that I feel the force of those very deeply, and that hell is a mystery of the Catholic faith in very much the same way that the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of transubstantiation of the two natures of Christ is a mystery, that I myself cannot articulate a, a completely rational, intelligible explanation that takes away this completely the sting of those objections. I mean, and apologists do. There are, there are arguments, rational arguments, for the logic of hell, uh, you know, God being an, a infinite goodness and majesty and honor and, and uh, the sin against, you know, conscious sin against a, a sort of an infinite good merits and infinite punishment. I, I've heard those arguments over the centuries. Well, I haven't lived centuries, but they've been articulated over the centuries. I've heard them over my lifetime. I, I understand why some people don't find them compelling, right? And, uh, and so where do I, how do I existentially deal with that? Well, I, I start with the fact that when we're talking about what happens beyond the veil, you know, beyond our five senses and our empirical experience, that uh, there is an awful lot about reality as well as the Catholic faith that we don't understand, and that the dogmas of the Church primarily are there to direct us in our life of prayer and our moral aspirations so that we will live like heaven and not like hell. Uh, that the reality of hell and heaven is not something that's uniquely lodged. It is lodged, but it's not uniquely lodged in the afterlife. It's something that begins in present experience. Uh, the Church teaches that grace, for example, is the seed of eternal life begun. Like the man who lives in the state of grace and in union with God and love of God and neighbor is already experiencing intimations of what the beatific vision will be like. And it's not hard for me to look around the world and see intimations of hell as well, right? And so uh, I recognize that, that to articulate these things as dogma is to say that the existential conditions in which men and women find themselves today, whether for good or ill, whether living in, in love or in hatred— uh, have eternal significance, and that you can continue on the trajectory that you're on right now, uh, and it's a change of degree and not of kind. Um, uh, and my response to that needs to primarily be not one of metaphysical speculation, but of moral change, right? And beyond that, you know, I have to, I have to throw up my hands and say it's mystery. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Dave is in Wheeling, West Virginia, listening on the EWTN app. Dave, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Okay, thank you, Dr. Anders. My friend is a um, was raised a very strong cradle Catholic, and she's fallen away and had a discussion with her the other night. I didn't know how to answer her. She is extremely disappointed in... Um, she was raised very, very strict Catholic as far as um, don't eat anything, you know, an hour before you receive communion. 
I'm not sure what those issues are called. I think that's part of the dogma. And she, she said several things like that, and that has caused her to fall away. She, she basically says she feels like a lot of those issues, you know, sex, don't have sex before marriage. So many people are living together, and she um, feels a disappointment with that. And she does believe in the, the love of Jesus, but uh, has become very um, uh, disappointed with uh, a lot of those, I don't mean to offend, but like smaller things. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it. So uh, let me get this straight. Let me make sure I understand the objection. So I heard several objections there. One of them was that she feels like in earlier decades, the Church insisted more vigorously on things like um, the the uh, the immorality of fornication, as well as the necessity of keeping the Eucharistic fast, and that whether we're talking about dimensions of the moral life like our sexuality or dimensions of church discipline like how we practice the church's fasts, that uh, she detects less seriousness about the Catholic faith today, and uh, and perhaps that has led uh, many people into being lackadaisical and lukewarm and and maybe indistinguishable from their secular neighbors, and therefore she has become sort of disgusted with the whole enterprise and has elected to give it up. Do, do, have I understood correctly? Exactly. Okay, no. I got you, got you. So he, here's what I would say about that. So, so first of all, uh, the two cases that you presented are not at all analogous. They're, they're really not, okay? Um, whether or not I fast for an hour or for 12 hours or for 30 minutes before Holy Communion, or not at all, um, is not essential to the, to the natural good of the human person as such. Right, it is a it is a convention, a disciplinary convention that the church institutes um, to heighten people's awareness of the dignity of Holy Communion. But the specific time frame, for example, is perfectly arbitrary. I mean, the church could say let's fast for twelve hours. It could say let's fast for twelve minutes, or it could abrogate the fast altogether. Right? That that's that's sort of like um, uh, the convention that the speed limit. Uh, in a part of town near my house is 20 miles an hour. My, uh, my wife got a ticket recently because she went from a 30 mile an hour to a 20 mile an hour and didn't see the sign. And boy, the cop was on her like white on rice. And uh, there, you know, nothing materially changed about the neighborhood or the traffic congestion in that five foot stretch of road, right? It was an arbitrary convention um, that the city council had put up, right? And uh, it's still the law. You still have to obey it. But there's nothing essential to, like, you know, traffic safety that would necessitate, hey, why not put the, the sign five feet further on? It would still serve the same purpose. And so the disciplinary rules of the Church about how we conduct ourselves in liturgy have that character. You, you need some principle. You have to have some principle to organize Catholic life so we can do things together. Uh, but the specific rules it could be changed. They're more or less arbitrary. It's different when you're talking about sexuality. Here we're talking about what is genuinely the rational good of the human person according to his or her nature. Um, it could never be good, for example, uh, to pick up a hammer and, and beat myself in the head with it. Right? That, that, that's, that's contrary to the, the rational and physical good of the human person. It's never going to be advisable uh, you know, for people to shoot up recreational heroin. Uh, it's just not going to become good for you, and, and no arbitrary stipulation could make it good for you. And so the, the real essence of the moral life is, with the help of grace, learning how to conform ourselves to the exigencies of our nature as created by God, to be rational, free people, 
uh, that can practice virtues like justice and fortitude and prudence and temperance, faith, hope, and charity. Uh, those things can't change, and they don't change. Right? So we have to get that distinction clear. Now, here, here's another difficulty, well, uh, response to her objection. Um, when it comes to deviations in the moral domain, things like premarital sex, for example, or maybe pride or lust or anger or gluttony, uh, I, I would agree that culture can be more or less uh, forgiving or tolerant or even embracing of, uh, of certain moral irregularities from one decade to another. That's far from obvious to me, however, that people in general are more depraved today as individuals than they've ever been in the history of the Church. In fact, looking back over 2,000 years of Christian history, uh, I mean, I'm perfectly, as a historian, I'm completely persuaded that uh, Christians have been just falling off the wagon uh, of sexual immorality and other things of that sort uh, since day one. And uh, the Church's rather extensive uh, a teaching and, and long tradition of commentary on, say, penitential practices is evidence that Christians have been uh, committing mortal sins from the very beginning. In fact, one of the earliest debates in Christianity outside the New Testament was, what do you do with Christians who commit mortal sins? How many times do you have to forgive them? Do you always have to reconcile them? And eventually the Church came to the conclusion, yeah, you, you keep on forgiving them, you keep on reconciling, and even though Christians keep on doing them. Uh, now, there are those of us in the Church that we call saints— who, who pull themselves with the help of grace out of that morass of immorality and, and live overcoming lives, but there will always be members of the visible body of Christ that, uh, that continue to perform enormities. And uh, unless they separate themselves entirely from the faith by apostasy, uh, the Church is there always to reconcile them. So that's, that's not a new thing. That's not a new thing in, in Catholic tradition. Um, and it wouldn't be a reason to leave the faith, right? Uh, it could be that you know, in childhood or early adulthood, uh, this person maybe was, uh, you know, lived in a culture where certain kinds of sins of the flesh were more hidden from public view because there was more public scandal involved. It doesn't mean that bad things didn't happen behind closed doors, and it doesn't mean that people were somehow, you know, sort of deep. Everybody was a saint. Everybody was not a saint. Everybody's never always been a saint. The saints are extraordinary individuals who lay hold of the elements of the faith and through heroic charity lift themselves out of the common lot of the human race. And that's what we're all called to, but it's a hard-won fight, and, and it, you know, we're all, we all have to do it, and there will always be saints in every culture, but there will always be those people who sort of hang on by the, by the tips of their moral fingertips until the very end. I mentioned at the beginning of the program that I was coming to you live from the studios of Ave Maria Radio. Uh, they've been a longtime partner of EWTN Radio, and uh, one of the programs they produce is Fire on Earth, Monday through Friday mornings at 5.15 a.m. Eastern Time. It's a great way to get your day off to a great start. Peter Herbeck talks about the Holy Spirit, what it is, and what the Church says about him. And you can check it all out Monday through Friday, 5.15 a.m. Eastern Time, Fire on Earth. Uh, produced by Ave Maria Radio in conjunction with us here at EWTN Radio. David, I've got an email from Catherine, and uh, and I'm sure that when you started this program, these were the sorts of results you were hoping for. She said, I stumbled upon your show years ago when my first few children were all still very young, and I can enjoy listening during long car rides back and forth to activities in another town. My 16-year-old son loves country music and often listens while doing chores around the house, whether it be washing the dishes or working in his garden. 
the past this past Lent, he chose to give up listening to music since he's interested in apologetics. I suggested he listen to your show instead. Lent is now long past, but he's still listening almost daily as he has uh, if he has the time. For me, it's a joy to look out my kitchen window and observe him picking the summer harvest or watering his garden and hearing your show playing in the background, your God-given talents. For speaking the truth in clarity is watering this young soul. I thank you for your dedication to this apostolate. I, I profoundly appreciate that. Thank you so very, very, very much. How kind. And then, very quickly, kind of a, a bit of a follow-up to a question we had earlier here in the last few moments of the program. Uh, George is watching on YouTube and wants to know, how are our Protestant brethren saved? Yeah, our Protestant brethren are saved uh, if, through faith, they are transformed in charity and obey the divine command of loving God and loving neighbor. They're saved in that way, the same way we are. Now, we have access to more means of grace and greater uh, access to the truth, uh, but, uh, but ultimately it's the grace of God transforming us interiorly so that we, our hearts are circumcised, St. Paul says, and we obey the divine command, loving God and loving neighbor. Now, uh, I was privileged to grow up among some very loving Protestants that I feel quite certain are saved because they died in the love and charity of God. Uh, I recognize, however, that their own doctrinal confession can be an impediment to that, right? So when, when your own teachers in the faith tell you, you do not need charity to be saved, many of those people will have charity nonetheless and be saved, but you're not doing anyone any favors when you tell, when you admonish them that they don't actually need charity to be saved. So we, we, we're not indifferent to the question of Protestant Catholic identity. Because I recognize, hey, it's not a good thing to tell people they don't need charity, whether or not they're charitable. Want them to have the fullness of the Catholic faith. But some of them will go on and have charity anyway, and they'll be saved thereby. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Rich Jesse, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Our thanks go out to uh, the good folks here at Ave Maria Radio, in particular Steve Clark, for getting us hooked up today. And we do the program every day, Monday through Friday. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.